it's sort of uh, odd to give a class when you already have a book that's this big. <laughs> it's two and a half pounds. When someone picked it up for the first time, they said, oh, we're going to sell a lot of the e-version of this book. Yeah. <laughs> and the audio version also, which is even lighter. So, um, I, I think I'll just talk a little bit about how the book came to be written and talk, just talk about Swami. We'll just see where, we'll just start in one place and see where it goes. Um, many of you have heard some of this, either because you've watched other satsangs I've given or those of you who live in the same community that I do have <laughs> been able to watch the agonizing process for many years. Um, I came to Swamiji, I came to Anand on June 1st, 1971. Right now that makes me seem like an old timer. At the time I was actually almost second generation because there was that uh, Shivani, Benai, Lakshmi, Jaya, Sadhana Devi, Jyotish Devi. There was a crowd that were all just a little bit older than me. Um, we actually, in, in uh, our 25th anniversary, we did a, a chronology of when you arrived based on who was still there, not based on who had ever come. Um, my number turned out to be 15, which is actually interesting. They actually gave me number 13, but Haridas and Nalini both came before me, and so they had it reversed. So my actual number was 15, which is really quite astonishing. And that tells you how many people don't stay, you know, just came and went through all those years. Um, but I was, in retrospect, here quite early. And I met Swami Kriyananda in November of 1969. So I count this as my 50th anniversary, too, because, oh, there she goes. <laughs> this is my friend. Yeah, this is this picture of 1977 when we published The Path and this was when the I'll tell you the whole story but the truck had come and this was the last Sunday of Spiritual Renewal Week in 1977 and the truck arrived and we ran up to the seclusion retreat and carried the books and then stood there and I held the book up and I was so excited and then this was the one of course we just did <laughs> so it's kind of cute thank you Sir, you put that together. Um, when, you know, when I came here, it, it's so interesting. Let me, I'm just going to go in lots of circles here. I came here because of Swami. I was really happy to have a place to live. I was just living in San Francisco. I believe at that time I was working as a legal secretary, but I was a college dropout. I was a complete... Uh, I was a complete stranger in a strange world. I'm sure a lot of you understand that, whether you integrated into the world or not. So I managed to just do small jobs for money because I couldn't imagine what I could actually give my heart to. One of the positions I had as a legal secretary was the very beginning, just before computers started, and they had some kind of specialized system that had just the beginning of that kind of technology. Where, where in a legal office you can imagine with so many documents. So I ran this little, I ran this little machine, semi-computerized machine, and I, it was a very good company, and I worked there for three months, and I was very good at the job I did. And at the end of three months, the personnel director fired me, rather than making me permanent. I was just astonished why she did that. And she told me, in, in more polite words than these, because she could tell I didn't give a damn. <laughs> 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 and uh, 
I sort of thought to myself, does anybody actually care about this work? You know? <laughs> no, I was maybe 21, so it was, I mean, I have a certain amount of youth on my side. Fifteen years later, when I was working here, maybe ten years later, I think when I was more or less running the publications business, probably working on getting the path published, and I could tell what it was to be committed. And I actually wrote her a letter and said to her, she never responded, but I said, I didn't understand why you fired me, but now I do. Because I understand what it is to actually give your heart to something. And I just didn't, I, it, was, it was preposterous to me to give my heart to anything. And it was an extremely unnerving experience. Uh, as well, you can well imagine, I was in my early 20s, but I, I was sort of a quick study. You know, I kind of moved through things kind of fast. I was done with college. I stayed a year, but I was done in about three weeks. You know, <laughs> it was just like... <laughs> I, because I had come for wisdom, and all they had to give me was knowledge. And because I had nothing that I was interested in, their knowledge was not helpful to me. If I'd wanted to be a doctor or a lawyer or virtually anything, a linguist, you know, their knowledge would have been helpful. But I wanted to be happy. And so their knowledge just didn't look very useful to me. So I, well, I, was, I went to Stanford in Palo Alto. I talked my way into Stanford. It wasn't as hard to get in in those days. But it was still impressive enough that I got in. And so it was the beginning of the hippies. And for those of you who know the Grateful Dead, the Grateful Dead were a Palo Alto band. And they were just starting. And so every weekend they would play somewhere. So that's what I did for the next, the rest of the year. I'd find out where their party was and I'd go and I... <laughs> yeah. It's like the past lives of all men are dark with any change. <laughs> but by the end of it, there I was. I was finished with college. By that time I was about to turn 19. My uh, uh, Shari and I share a birthday. And so uh, next week is our birthday. And I was not quite 19. I'd, there I'd finished college. I mean, not finished, finished with <laughs> college. But by that time, the concept of consciousness had entered the discussion. You know, we were really early. This would have been 1966. So the, the concept of consciousness had entered, and it had, had occurred to me that that was actually the missing link. That somehow consciousness was what the issue was, and that's what I'd been looking for all the time. But I didn't think the Grateful Dead really had it. You know? <laughs> they were sort of like trying, you know, trying to be freer and different, but it, it wasn't really where I was trying to go. And right after I got back to Southern California where I was living, I got connected with some old friends, and um, almost immediately um, somebody handed me a book by Swami Vivekananda, um, the foremost disciple of Ramakrishna, you know, just a, a true and a great avatar. And I, I, I probably read the whole book, but in memory it's like I opened it and just read three phrases, which I still remember. Perfect love casts out fear, which I later found out was from the Christian Bible, but I didn't know that because I was Jewish and I'd never read the Christian Bible. And um, what you 
are today is a result of what you did yesterday and what you will be tomorrow is what you're doing today. That was a summary of the law of karma. And the third one was, don't think about yourself and you'll be happy. That was a complete mystery to me. What else would you think about? I mean, it was just like, you know. I wasn't selfish, but I, I, as I was, I was speaking about this a few days ago somewhere else, but I always calculated my own position in any situation. Not selfishly, but I always wanted to have fun. And so I was always reappraising situations to see which would be the most fun for me, and then I would follow that one. Long after I moved here, not long after I moved here, soon after I moved here, um, I guess it would have been a year or two, because by then I was living over at Ayodhya, where Swami lives. I was with the convent there, and we lived in the upper Ayodhya part. Seva and I were soulmates. We are soulmates, but we, we were also together all the time. And Seva was... Seva was more of an adult than many of us were. Jyotish and Seva were both grown-ups. <laughs> Satya was sort of a grown-up. Satya was older, actually. Swami, of course, was the, the real grown-up. But Seva was more of a grown-up, and Jyotish was a grown-up. I was not a grown-up. And Seva would just go to work every morning at 9 o'clock, which was just like really sort of unheard of in the context. You know, Hanel, the gardener, would go to work at 7, he, he, and he got all his people there at 7, but... Just this idea that you would just go to work. And I also was supposed to go to work with her. And one day I started out, you know, early walking over. And I actually arrived at Pubble, which is now Hansa Temple, at four in the afternoon. <laughs> <coughs> and Seva was a woman of few words, but of great spiritual authority. All she said was, good morning. <laughs> But all through the whole day, I just kept calculating my own advantage, and I just kept seeing more fun things to do, which were helpful. You know, I helped do this, and I helped do that. But it was really, in a, in, in a, in a way, I was still all very, what about me, what about me, what about me? This is what I'd rather do. After that, I told people, if Babaji were going to be at the farm at 2, and I had told Seva I would be at the office, I would be at the office. <laughs> because I realized what, what it was that the spiritual life was really all about. And it, it wasn't just having fun in the sense of self-indulgence, it was actually lifting your awareness to a whole different level in which Dharma was the key. And that, as Woha's master put it, I slept and dreamt that life was uh, duty, I woke and found that life was beauty, or reversed, however he says it. The end point is, you really find out that joy is in doing, in having the capacity to do what you're supposed to do. Not in just being able to follow, as, was it um, Sri Teshwar, whims and fancies, until you attune your will to the will of the Guru. So, right then, in 1966, it was like, oh, this is it. You know, growing up as a Jewish girl in the West, and most of my childhood in Texas, which was not a real high consciousness place in the 60s. It's better now. <laughs> but it was still, I just didn't know anything about these, but as soon as I, I saw it, I recognized it had to be past lives. And then I just absorbed everything I could, and very quickly I started reading the lives of saints, because I could intellectually grasp what was going on, but I, I was a person who wanted to live it. 
I didn't, I wasn't a person who wanted to sit around and talk about it. It's just like, what good will that do me? Because every morning I'll get up and it'll be just the same. I wanted to really change myself, but I really just couldn't figure out how to do it. So I read about all these saints, but of course, saints' lives sometimes are really wild. Milarepa, you know, and, and then these, uh, Father Damien, who, you know, went to the leper colony, and then Christian missionaries who go out to somewhere in some jungle and then get killed by the cannibals they're trying to convert, you know. It was pretty exciting, but I didn't really exactly know what I was going to do about any of that. And I got, I got increasingly desperate, is actually the only way I can put it. You know, Thoreau has that statement, most men live lives of quiet desperation. I didn't, uh, I didn't know it as clearly, but in retrospect, that's what I see. And then Lakshmi, who still lives here, Lakshmi Selby, I knew her from before. And she met Swami Kriyananda, and she said to me these exact words, I've met a real teacher and I think you'll like him. So then he actually came, and he actually spoke at Stanford University. I still lived in Palo Alto. I seem to have two places that I ever live, which is here and there. <laughs> and he came into the room, and he, he hadn't spoken. He just walked into the room, and I, I saw his consciousness. I'm not at all given to that sort of thing. I'm an extremely practical person. So I actually, to this day, don't know what I saw. But that's the way it felt to me. I saw his consciousness. And what I saw about his consciousness was that it had no boundaries. And I hadn't really realized that my consciousness and everybody's consciousness had boundaries. And his consciousness did not have boundaries. And when I saw that, I understood the, that what I had been looking for was freedom. And it wasn't a word that I had actually had in my mind. You know, we just think of ourselves as free. But I, I was looking for freedom because there was an unbearable confinement to, my, to being myself. And, you know, it's a kind of existential angst that you can't explain to most people. Most people are perfectly content to be themselves. They even like being themselves. They're proud of being themselves. You can see the way they strut around in the world and the way they push their weight around and tell everybody what to do. You know, they like being themselves. And I was a, an okay person, you know. I have my faults. Those of you who know me well, know them well. <laughs> but, you know, I was an okay person. I could make myself way in the world. And, in fact, I was fairly effective, especially if words were involved. I could talk myself pretty much through anything. But I just felt absolutely confined. The, the only ambition I'd ever had was to have about a dozen children. I've never even been pregnant now, but because that looked like expansion to me. <laughs> Fortunately, I found the spiritual path instead. <laughs> but when he came in the room, I was looking at freedom. And I remembered just my, res my instinctive response was, he has what I want. I really don't think I could have defined it, but I, I recognized it. That was it. I, he had it. And then I just made the decision. It took me a year and uh, more than a year just because karma is karma. But I made the decision in that moment where he is, I'll be. And basically, I really never made another decision in my life. It took me more than a year to get to where he was. But once I got to where he was, where Swami is, that's where I'll be. And 
from time to time he sent me away. He sent me away finally in 1987. And, but that essential understanding, and of course I've grown to understand it far more than physical, just because of the destiny I had, we're all born at exactly the right time for the right reason, because of the destiny I had that did translate physically um, very soon. One of Swamiji's principles of leadership um, is to give the most energy to the people who are most receptive to what you're trying to accomplish. He said most leaders make a mistake and they spend all their time trying to persuade the people who are not with them. And his Swami said you put out a great deal of energy to bring them to zero and as soon as you turn your back they slip back down into negative again and at the end you have nothing. So Swamiji always just would find those who he knew had the potential to really, well, Jyotish was talking about it this morning, the, the twofold part of it, which is to receive the vision and then commit themselves to carrying it out. So at the, at the beginning of Ananda, Swamiji's way of presenting himself was so completely different than it was when you all, many of you knew him in the last decade of his life <clears throat> or knew of him because of the last decade. Just a moment. There was a, he was in San Francisco at that time, between San Francisco and here, <clears throat> and Sacramento also. And uh, it was a real scene in Sacramento, <laughs> I mean in San Francisco, you know, it was the beginning of all of that, all that happened. And there were lots of gurus uh, from India or self-declared, um, and it was, it was just a scene, there's no other way to put it. It was totally fun, but it was a bit of a circus. And Swamiji was wise enough to realize that even though he, he, he was going to participate in it, which he did, that he was really a breed apart. That what Master had in mind, and, I, and there were some great souls in that scene, so I don't want to dismiss everyone, but what Swami was doing was a much longer rhythm. This was sort of a fad that was going on, and he knew he stood completely outside that fad. And the guru fad was a fad that he particularly didn't want to have anything to do with. He also knew that we were just a bunch of, for the most part, you know, stupid Americans who didn't have any idea, you know, what a guru really was. We'd just read it in these books and get all excited, and we just had no idea. So Swami made the very wise decision that the first thing we had to learn was what it meant to be a disciple. Because the guru has his act together. It's like, that's not a problem. <laughs> you know? The problem is from this side, because we haven't the foggiest idea, really, how to relate and how to be. And, and people like to just sort of look around and figure out how we're supposed to be. You know, just sort of see what it's supposed to look like and get the right costume and get the right attitude and get the right gestures and get the right look on your face and you know, just whatever it might be, because that's easier. I mean, it's just natural. I remember when I was 15 and I realized, before I discovered consignment stores and Goodwill, that I couldn't dress out of fashion even if I wanted to, because everybody wore what people wore, whereas 200 years ago they wore something else. In other words, we're all just influenced. And in something as serious as discipleship, um, it, there's no progress at all 
in just pretending. So he made it very um, difficult for us to assume an attitude toward him. And the way he, he put it to me once was just simply, I thought I could accomplish more good by being a simple, unaffected friend to people than in any other role. That was his answer. Now that was an interesting answer. He actually gave that answer to me in a taxi cab in New York. We were there for some reason, well, I don't remember what, what caused us to be there, but we had gone to see, I think it was Hilda Charlton, who at that point was a very big um, name, and she had these huge satsangs with 700 people in the basement of the St. John the Divine Church, I think, and you know, all these 700 people chanting Om, and there was a whole lot of stuff going on around it. And after we left there, I, and she had, a, she had great regard for Swamiji. In fact, she, she rarely went anywhere. And early the next morning, she just kind of broke into the apartment where we were staying and prostrated herself in front of Swamiji because she was so moved, because she was a genuinely, deeply spiritual person and she recognized who he was. But I said something to Swami, Swamiji, if you, if you would just let us walk around, you know, with a white umbrella over your head, which is sort of the symbol in India of the guru, something, you know, there's one disciple's job who just walks around and shields the guru from the sun all the time with the white umbrella. Because, you know, we had like 30 people at our programs and we're there and there's 700 in this thing. I said, if you would let us just walk around with a white umbrella, meaning if you would allow us a little more, you know, hoopla around you, I said, we could, and I, the phrase he was, we could really get this show on the road like that. <laughs> I was just, he knew I was joking. But that was when he gave me that answer. No, I could, I could do a lot more good, he said. And so... At the same time, in that same conversation with Swamiji, I said something to him, and, and this has always been my attitude, essentially. Swamiji, the difference between you and Master is not obvious to me. The difference between me and you is real obvious to me. So, you know, I will try to come closer to what you are, and if you tell me that where I'm going is trying to be closer to Master, that's fine with me. You know, you guys work it out. I don't, you know, I can only see what I can see, and I'll just move in that direction. And Swami's answer to me was, Master told me that I would be more than a teacher, this is what Swami said, that I would have spiritual responsibility for people. You know, and now that's a phrase, I don't know what that phrase really means. I'm just not in a position to understand what it means to be spiritually responsible for people. Isn't that, it's just a very interesting phrase. But that's when he said, but I always thought I could do more good by being a simple, unaffected friend. So what I heard him say, and this would have been like 74, 75, something like that, was, I know what I'm doing. But I also heard him say to me, and you know what you're doing too. So I always felt that out of respect for Swamiji, and in an appropriate attitude for a disciple, whether he was acting on Master's behalf or acting on his own behalf, it wasn't my question. I had to uh, cooperate with what he wanted. So in all those early years at Ananda, um, Swamiji was so unaffected in the way he related to us and so um, uh, 
he would always demur when you would it, too much devotion toward him he never accepted and he would always direct it toward master but you have to realize that master always directed devotion toward God and to Babaji and to Sri Yukteswar see we don't understand what gurus really are we have this idea in our mind because all we understand is ego so we also think in terms that a guru must just have a super gigantic infinite ego in some way I mean, even if it's loving and kind, we, we do not understand how completely non-existent these beings are. It's not that they're just like us, only better. They're, they're, they just simply don't exist. They're just simply not there. And all that happens through them is this power of divine energy. And I, in the, at the very beginning of this book, I actually start the book with a little conversation that I had with Swamiji in 2011, February of 2011. I'll just read it because it took me forever to get the words just right, so I might as well read them to you, except she can't find it now. Um, well, I can't find it, so I'll say it. Huh. But by 2011, when Swamiji was behaving so differently, behaving so differently in the sense that especially when he went, he start, it started when he went to Italy in 1998 it really expanded when he went to India in 2003 and after that it was sort of like after he wrote the Gita commentary but even before that it's like he, he'd, he'd accomplished all that he came to do and all effort, all effort on his part He just, there was no need anymore to wear, to wear a personality, would be almost the way I would say it. He just didn't need a personality anymore, so he just allowed himself to be what he was. This was on February 2011 in Los Angeles. People often ask me, I said to Swamiji, if you have changed since I first met you in 1969. My answer is no. I should tell you, Swamiji always let me ask him questions, and he almost always answered me. And I thought everybody was able to do that. I didn't realize till later that he knew I was going to write about him and talk about him, so he always let me ask him. And it was important because a lot of times I'd, I just have an intuition and uh, he, he would confirm or deny my intuition so that gradually I was able to gain confidence. I could feel when I was right or not. So this was, this was partly why we had this conversation. So my answer is no. And then I say, the first moment I saw you, I thought, his consciousness has no boundary. He is limitless. You had so much work to do, though, that for a long time, you kept a veil over your consciousness. It took intuition to see through it. Now your work is done. So you, you have removed that veil. Your consciousness has always been the same, but the way you express it has changed. I trust my intuition, <clears throat> but it is never wise to presume. So I asked, may I say that, sir? Yes, Swamiji said, because it's true. So I wanted people to know, I put this at the beginning of the book, I was, uh, when I was visiting Dharmadas in Nirmala once, I, I wanted people to know it's a bhakti bio, <laughs> you know? <laughs> This is not a, a, a... Phil Goldberg wrote a book about Yogananda, which is a very good book full of information. But it's not a bhakti bio, if you know what I mean. It's a journalist. A journalist writes about it. This, is, this book is not a journalist. 
This is a devotee who has infinite regard for the subject of the biography and is writing it entirely, but at this, entirely from that perspective. But at the same time, um, now I'm going. I'll just back up a little bit in in this story here. Um, when when we came here, I'll come back to that in a minute. You know, I was starting to say when we came here, Swamiji's demeanor was so so casual. He he led all the services. He there were only a few other people who were. Um, commissioned to teach, Jyotish being one of them, and a couple of other men who aren't who who aren't here anymore. Um, so that's how my number got to be 15. You know, some of those people they, <laughs> they were the people who got my number lower. <laughs> but uh, Jyotish did did program sometimes, and and gradually all, all of us got into the act. But it was really a one-man show with Swamiji, and he had his guitar, and he hadn't. There was no no singing group. He hadn't written the multiple parts for the songs. He would just come with his guitar, he would sit down, he would say, what do you want me to sing? We'd just ask for different songs and he'd sing. And then he'd give all the classes, Spiritual Renewal Week, he gave all the, all the morning classes and all the evening programs. And he'd tell us stories about Master and he'd play music and then sometimes he'd show us slides of India and tell us stories about being in India. It was just, that was all that was going on. And, and it was just... So we were so extraordinarily isolated, especially at the beginning because we were living up at the seclusion retreat. Um, that's where the heart of things was. The community was going on here, but uh, there wasn't a lot of attunement to what Swamiji was doing. And Jyotish was doing a hero's work, um, just trying to pull that energy together. And you know, he, he had such a, a wonderful, uh, loving nature that he could hold all these disparate energies together and just kind of inch it forward slowly by slowly until, well, really the fire of 1976 was the real turning point when a lot of people got burned out. And when they didn't have a home, Ananda was a place. And when they didn't have a place, they didn't have an Ananda. It was, it was a completely different reality, and that was a real dividing line. I'm skipping around, but I'm going to stay with this for a minute. Hearing Jyotish and Davy talk about the fire, I remember when the fire started, I was uh, nominally in charge of the publications business, which was in the Hansa Temple at that point. And of course, this was very early when things were much more physical than they are now. Um, our, we had a mailing list, and the mailing list was on metal plates, like this, and we had these big boxes of metal plates. And the fire was up in the hills, and it was coming down toward this, and we could see it coming toward the, the publications building, and Seva and I went running up the hill, and we drove a big truck up there to get everything we could out of that building, which was all the original t recordings of Swamiji, all the original uh, pieces of the books that he'd written at that point. And I remember running up the hill, and saying to Seva, the first thing we have to take is the mailing list because we're going to have to rebuild. And so it was the first thing we grabbed, you know, and threw it in the truck, and then we took the originals of everything. We had this huge press. It must have weighed 5,000 pounds. I pushed on it a little bit to see if we could get it. And then someone went over to pick up the copier, and I shouted, Leave that! It's rented! <laughs> But you know, there was no, the, the reality of it. <laughs> but when, when those people, when the land just looked like 
like Russia, I mean, you know, our image of Russia in winter, like, like a scene out of Dr. Zhivago, just white ash and black trees. I actually got lost. I got lost walking from Ayodhya to the farm. I mean, I'd walked that a hundred, hundreds of times, but I just took a wrong turn because everything was changed. And so people, it was ugly, and they had no place to live, and, and they, they just didn't know that Ananda had been untouched. I mean, Jyotish and Devi knew that, a lot of us knew it, but the people who didn't, that's when they left. But prior to that, we really had two realities, and the reality of the retreat was sort of where Swami's world was, and Ayodhya, he'd gotten Ayodhya by then. The farm was kind of in the middle. We called it the farm then, it was in the middle. And then it, it began to come together. But when I first got here, he very quickly, on Sunday afternoons, he would give, he would give, uh, he would give Sunday service, then we'd have lunch. I was running the kitchen, and I would cook lunch. And uh, then he would invite us over to his house for tea. And his house at, that, at first was uh, at the seclusion retreat. And we'd sit out on the porch, or we'd sit inside, and we'd have tea. And, and then he would just talk, and we'd talk, and, and he just would talk about everything. You know, about Master, about politics, about the world, about Ananda's future, about literature, about movies. You know, he was so extraordinarily well-educated and well-read. And, and he felt that it was, it was not necessary to be narrow. And, and only much later did I come to appreciate, because, you see, he was so free. Th those of us who are less free have to be more narrow in our focus, because our expanded interests can be dissipating. I don't mean that's always true, because people are different. You know, um, if creative people, artistic people, you have to have a, a bigger field. But Swamiji could be interested in everything, and what he was also doing, as I look back on it, he was teaching us Master's perspective on everything. And it, it's fascinating to me, after all these years, you know, 50 years now, and much of my life has been in public, I, I, I honestly, I can't remember ever being asked a question that I, I couldn't figure out what Swami would have said about that, or did say about it, and that there was an answer in our teachings. I mean, that's really quite remarkable. And it's just because of who he was, and because of his determination to, to share that with us. So, somewhere in there, and I believe it was within the first year, I turned 24 just after I came here, and somewhere within that first year, he asked me to start helping him as a secretary. I was still working in the kitchen, I'm pointing which direction, but in the kitchen, I worked in the kitchen for about a year and a half, and then he had me start working with him. And somewhere in there, he told me to start taking notes. And I may already have been taking notes, because I always felt, just from the beginning, that I was a witness to greatness, and this greatness does not come very often. And I had been given a front row seat to something that was so extraordinarily important and so unusual. And there weren't very many of us there. And so I was conscious of the fact that, that there was a tremendous responsibility in this. And I 
may have already started taking notes, but as soon as he said that to me, for the rest of my life, I was never without a pen and a piece of paper when I was with him, in any circumstance. I just always had it, and I would always write something down, or later, and whenever he would telephone, I would take notes of what he said, and then, of course, emails and letters and all of that sort of thing. And it was always because I had a responsibility. And it terrified me. That's the only word I can use. He, just like he told me, someday you're going to have to write about me. And then he saw me just like, you know, practically leave my body in horror. <laughs> so he said, not yet. <laughs> but then he said, he, the phrase he used was, if it's explicit between us, he said, I can help you. And it's not like in the years after that he would refer to the book very often. But in retrospect, he, he, I always seemed to be there at critical moments. And I, I often was there when I had no reason to be there, absolutely no reason at all. And I, the way I put it is I always helicoptered in. You know, if he was in another country or something like that, somehow or another I would helicopter in and I would just happen to be there. Now, bear in mind, this book, you know, is 700 pages and 220,000 words, and just what, jo what Davy said about St. John's words. This is just what I saw. You know, and I didn't, I didn't even live in the same community with him from 1987 on. But it was enough. I mean, God, what would I have done if I'd seen more, you know? <laughs> we would have had to sell this book with a Sherpa, you know? <laughs> But, and also, as I said a little while ago, he also, um, he wanted to make sure that I understood. And I always wanted to make sure that I understood. I was, I was avid to the point of obnoxiousness, truly. Just always wanting, sometimes he would say to me, you know, Asha, there's a point where intuition has to take over. You know, there's just, <laughs> not everything can be explained. All right, I'll accept that. Um, but let me just think, oh yes. So, what I began to understand, or I was saying about the anxiety I felt about it, it was also a personal karma with me. I could always speak easily, but I had a, a, an anxiety, a very anxiety, heart doesn't begin to express it, phobia about writing. I don't have any idea why, and now I don't have it, so I don't feel that way. So just the idea of having to actually write was also in itself very, very traumatic for me. But Swamiji, you know, it was a two-fold assignment. It was one that it needed to be done, and, and I needed to do it. And he just never let up on that. And I tried quite a few times to just plead helpless impossibility. And he was always kind, but he was also unrelenting. And he basically said, you won't be satisfied if you don't do it. Which eventually, you know, I came to understand. So gradually, what I began to realize, let's see, I, I, I tried to write this book in 2006, and I couldn't, I just simply couldn't. I couldn't bring it to a focus. I was just too confused, much too confused. And Swami gave up on me and asked Devi to write the biography that she wrote, um, Faith is My Armor. And then that freed me up just to write stories. So I wrote the first book, Swami Kriyananda, as we have known him, 
which by the way is a very good book. <laughs> I looked at it recently, it's a very good book. But that I could do, I could just write stories. But there was a very interesting aspect of that, which see, you see all of this in retrospect. And partly I'm saying this to some of you because some of you haven't been in your bodies as long as I've been in mine. And so your perspective is different. And now that I'm the age that I am, I have this terrible fear that whatever I know is just because I've been in this body so long and as soon as I'm in a young body again, I'll forget everything I know now. This is, very, this is a source of great anxiety to me. Um, but you, you begin to see the pattern if you go through it enough times and you begin to realize that it's all just a picture that's being woven thread by thread. And even though it looks like it's going into knots or into darkness, it isn't. And every single thread is working. So I completely fizzled on trying to write an actual biography or anything that looked like a biography. Um, and so I wrote the book of stories. And I was not quite done with it. And Swamiji asked me to come over to India. He was living in India then. I think he already had Guru Kripa. He already had his house there. And uh, he had set up a room for Jyotish and Devi, which was actually like a, a tent on the roof that they had furnished like a room. And I was there when they weren't there, so he, he put me in that room up on the roof of the house. And I had the manuscript. Now, I had a long history with Swamiji, a long history, starting in the 70s, where I would write for him, write things, articles, publicity, letters, all kinds of stuff. The letters I was actually able to write. Isn't that interesting? But the publicity and everything else. And he would mostly throw it away and rewrite it. It was a, just a pretty steady... Sometimes he actually wouldn't read it. He would hold it in his hand and he would say, oh, it doesn't have enough magnetism. <sighs> yeah, sometimes I took it in good spirits, sometimes I didn't. So I bring this whole manuscript to him and I really didn't know. I really didn't know whether he was just going to say sorry or whether he would just rewrite it or just tell me to start over. I, I, you know, I was doing my best, but I had no idea. So we sat on the couch there um, in his house, and you know, he, he read it page by page like this. And he just kept turning the pages. And there were funny stories, and we laughed about them, and he, he would comment on various things. And I took, I took so many leaps of faith in that book. You know, people would tell me stories, and in many cases, and I, I mean, some of you gave me your stories, so I have to say this in a delicate way. <laughs> many of the people who gave me their stories didn't know what had actually happened to them. But I knew what had happened to them. Either because in many cases I was on both sides of it, you know, that I heard Swami speak about it afterwards, or I just knew what had happened. And, and that was a grace, that I knew what had happened. I just, I understood him where he enlightened me. So I just, I knew he was going to read it, so I just went out and just did what I was going to do. And he just kept turning the pages. And he actually corrected one thing, well, two things, we had two, two interesting pieces. The first was, I had said that at a certain point he was too youthful and he had prayed for his hair to turn white. He said, I did not. <laughs> 
I said, yes, you did, sir. We were standing by the sink, you know, we were about to go out the door, because I have a visual memory. He said, I did not. And I just like, and then I said, sir, if I misremember, then a whole lot of this book is up for grabs, because, you know, my memory is what I'm counting on a lot, and notes. So then I went to sleep, and in the middle of the night I realized that he would never have told Master what to do. All he said was, I'm too youthful, I need to look more mature, people are not respecting me. And then his hair began to turn white. And he was certain he'd never said it, because he never would have said it. And so that, I think God put that in there so that I would be extremely attentive to nuance. Because you see what a difference that is? Because these are not just stories that say, oh, weren't you lucky to be able to be here, wasn't he, you know, wasn't he exceptional? You know, and what Swami liked about that book is that every story was a teaching. Every story had a principle. And even that, that was a principle, even though it was subtle in there, I had changed the principle. And so he wouldn't let me do it. Then the other thing that we really had a, a, a to-do about was when the people, when Assisi was assaulted by the police and uh, the, the whatever, the chosen were taken away to, to prison. <laughs> And uh, Swamiji had just left for India. He left in November, and I think they were raided in January or something. And I guess they were arrested in March. But Swami had skipped town, as far as the police could see. <laughs> and as soon as he got to India, the tapasya became so intense, he simply couldn't travel. I mean, he, it, was, it was folly for him to take that flight. So everybody in Italy is being arrested and harassed, and the reason they ended up arresting them was because Jyotish and Devi came to Assisi and went to stay in Swami's house. And apparently the police were watching the house and they had been waiting for Kriyananda to come back because he, they, they had meant to arrest him. And Jyotish looked like Kriyananda as far as they were concerned. So at five that morning when the police raided to throw everybody in jail, they banged on the door to arrest Kriyananda but it was Jyotish, and so they missed him. You know, it's just like God's amazing game. And of course they couldn't arrest Jyotish because he wasn't on any list. Just because he looked like Swami, that wasn't enough to arrest him. <laughs> but so Swami is in, in India, and his people are being, you know, seriously persecuted. And when they went to prison, they got out after a week, I think, or less. But we didn't know, because in in Italy, it was criminal charges. We were being, we were being uh, attacked by the same laws they used to bust the mafia. Slavery, uh, money laundering, taking advantage of weak-minded people. It was pretty wild. So Swami's here, and all of this is happening here, and he's just beside himself, really, because he's not... He's responsible, that's how he feels. You know, anything that happens, I'm responsible. So. He was in the shower, uh, in his house there, and there was a, a, a tile lip that was about four inches high and about four inches wide. And he toppled over backwards and just smashed right, right at his heart, just full weight right at that point. So it's a big deal. He calls, he calls on the phone, and he was calling. I'm not the only one he called, but he would, he would call this little coterie of people that he would call. And... Uh, he said, basically, he said, I hope it helps with the karma in Assisi. 
In other words, he was taking the karma onto his own body. So I wrote that in the book. It was a darn good story. I was going to put it in there. Swami says, you can't say this. And for me, suddenly, I have all this spine. I'm standing up to him saying, it's what you said, Swamiji. It's the point of the story. The story has no point unless I say it. He says, you can't say this. And I said, well, it has to be said. You know, I was just, well, I don't know where it came from. <laughs> and so I go to bed that night upstairs in my, up on the roof, and I woke up, I tended to wake up really early. I woke up at four in the morning, this often happens to me, I woke up at four in the morning and I thought how I could shift it. So I'm sitting there with my laptop changing the story. Swami walks in about five. He just walks right in and he says, you can't say that like this. I said, it's fine, I changed it. But actually what he said to me is, I said, but it's true. He said, yes, but it's not for me to say. And, you know, it's really interesting. In, in Master's teachings, Master tells us how to regenerate a, an amputated limb, you know, in his healing. He just like, there's no limit to what he says we can do with our, our consciousness and with our mind like that. But when he refers to taking on karma for others, in autobiography it says only by an, a, a, a subtle technique advanced yogis can use. It was very interesting to me, because I really looked into this. It's just not something you talk about. It's a sacred gift from God that you do. I'm seeing, but now, after he died, I can say it. <laughs> because he's not here to stop me. And also... <laughs> well, actually, that's not true. <laughs> that is way, way, way not true. But the end of that book was, it gave me a lot of confidence because those were the only two things. Oh, and then he did change one other, but he, ch he just changed it. He had said to this young man, this young man that Swami wanted to have come join the ashram, and he said, if I did that, my mother would be very disappointed. And Swami said, sooner or later you have to disappoint your mother. <laughs> and so I put it like that, but he changed it to, we have to be prepared to disappoint our mothers because I think he wanted to give a few mothers credit for you know, <laughs> being willing to see the point. But it gave me a lot of confidence that, that if I felt something was true, I could, I could flow with that energy. Which, of course, really mattered, because when I wrote this book, he wasn't there anymore, in the body. And I, I worked on this book, people have asked me, I, I probably worked on it pretty solidly for about 18 months, over a period of two years. And that was really, and I, again, I just, I just couldn't get any traction. And then Kirtani and Anand bought this little, had, had this land that Kirtan, that Anand has always had up in, way up in northern Washington, in the middle of Washington State, right by Canada. And they finally put a little house on it, a little manufactured house. I came to the colony leaders meeting a couple of years ago, and I was completely stuck on this book. I'd been working on it for several months, but it just, I could feel it just wasn't happening. And I was again falling into a state of despair. Swami had already passed. I was very anxious about it. Kirtani, in her extraordinarily intuitive way, just says, we were up at our house and I see you there writing. And I said, yes, I'll go on June 1st. <laughs> you know, they were going to be there in May, I'll go on June 1st. And I just did, and I went to this exceedingly isolated place. No internet, no telephone, nothing. Just this little house, fa absolutely fantastic. 
And as soon as I was completely alone, I was able to write. It was just as simple as that, because I had to be able to hear Swami talking to me. And, and so, in seclusion, either at that house or Barvi was kind enough to lend me her house, which is close to Ananda, here on Robinson Road, and I lived there for a number of months, when I was completely alone with this book, then all of a sudden, all of you who are artistic and creative in any way understand this, at a certain point, it begins to tell you. And there's a point at which you are trying to tell it, and that never works, and then at a certain point, it begins to tell you. And there was just a point at which it began to tell me. What I would really say is that Swami began to tell me. He just began to tell me what it was that he wanted to say. And I came to the life and legacy, because what I realized was what I, what I needed to preserve, and I'm looking at a lot of you who either, I mean, some of you lived the life that I lived, and some of you saw Swami once or twice at the end of his life, and some of you have never met him in the body. And of course, with the, uh, you see, Swamiji has created an entire culture of self-realization. He's written 150 books because he turned his mind to every aspect of life and explained to us the Kriya Yoga approach to it. It's Dwapara Yuga, it's a new age, it's a completely new way of life. And right now, nobody cares. Like, nobody cares. Us. We're this tiny little remnant on the planet that cares. But most of them, you know, outside the boundaries of this land, are just doing something completely else. But they will care. And that's why many of you were born after Swami's incarnation was even over, because this is a legacy that has been given into our hands and we have a sacred responsibility. And, you know, you all have not missed, those of you who are newer, you haven't missed the pioneer phase. This is the pioneer phase. You know, we, we did physical things, and you all have a lot of physical things to do. I mean, we have almost no communities, really. You know, it's just a handful. This is supposed to spread like wildfire. This is the lifestyle of the future. This is what Babaji wants, is for Kriya Yogis and those who love God to gather together and to support each other. It's the only way we're ever going to make any progress. This is what Davy was talking about this morning. Each other, we need each other. And we need to be close to each other. And we need to share our lives. And we need to build our friendships. And we barely scratch the surface of this. But we have to do it in tune. You know, it, it can't be that, well, I'm a new generation. I'm going to do it a new way. And yes, of course, things change. You know, I, my artistic taste is not the same as some others. I mean, I remember just simple things saying to Swamiji when I was going out to teach classes, I was saying, well, I'm going to give a lot of classes on the chakras because it's such a popular subject. Swami said, really? <laughs> he said, in the 40s when I was teaching, you know, in the 50s when I was teaching, you could never have given a class on the chakras. I said, well, now, Swami, everybody knows about the chakras. It's like, you know, common currency. Really? You know, so, so things change, styles change, but very little else changes. This is, I'll tell you, just because I love telling this story. I'm going to tell you about the shortest meeting in the history of Ananda. Uh, there was a young man, he was in, probably not quite 30, and he was quite convinced that we needed to change what we were doing in order to attract young devotees. So he, he, he was in a position of responsibility, and he had Swami's ear. So Swami, we called a meeting, and it was actually outside at the Crystal Hermitage around a table, 
and this young man comes and he presents his case, we need to attract young devotees. Swami said, there's no such thing as young devotees, there's just devotees. Shall we have tea? <laughs> but fashion changes. And you know, you can't... I, I finally understood that. You know, if you're a 70-year-old woman and you want everyone to wear your hairdo, you know, it, it just doesn't work. It really doesn't work. Because there are generational realities and things that have to be worked with but not the principles. It's more like, how do I express these principles in a way that is sincere to the reality? Just like I could go out and teach about the chakras, you know, and I used to give all these classes on relationships and things like that, because that's what was up. Swami didn't do that, but I did, because it was right for me to do it, because it was a message I, I could deliver, and I delivered my message in my way, not his message in my way, is what I would say. And Swami delivered Master's message in his way, and Diamata delivered Master's message in her way. So it's not like there's no place for us, as long as we know what we're really doing. And so I realized, having been a witness to history, and having uh, 15 boxes of paper, of notes, of all those years, and all those times when he had sorted it out, that it was a tremendous responsibility to say as much as I could about the legacy. So the book came out very different than I expected, because I'm hardly in it. It's not the kind of breezy memoir that I thought it was going to be, you know, just like this. It was just, he, he just had something to say. And a lot of it is Swami's own words. It just began to unfold that, oh, this is what Swami wants to say. And there was a fascinating thing that I discovered working through this. There was a group of us that were, that most of us were colony leaders, just as it happened, but not all. It was a group of 10 or 12 people that, I mean, I don't know if other people felt this way, but I sort of felt like we were interchangeable. That we were just, whatever country Swami happened to be in, there would be one or two around like that, and they would usually escort him and help him. And They were people to, um, with whom Swamiji could be completely relaxed, and he did not have to edit what he said. He could just speak his mind without the necessity for careful language, and so therefore uh, he could explore ideas with us. And he would talk on the phone, send emails, talk in person, and so I had all these notes from more or less private conversations. So I had the feeling that I knew a lot that other people didn't know, or that he'd said a lot to us that he hadn't said to others. But over the years, Swami was a huge communicator, and he often wrote letters to Ananda worldwide. You know, and there were just stacks and stacks of these many-page letters and he, and he would write in his books, and he would do in his talks. And I gradually discovered, and I, I, I didn't quantify it, but I believe almost nothing that he said in private did he not later say in public. You know, it, it, was, it was very interesting to me. Usually by the time it was a public letter, he'd polished the language. And he'd sorted out the nuances, and he'd, he'd figured out the possible misunderstandings. But Swami was just an open channel. He didn't hide what he was thinking. And the most important thing I realized about Swamiji as a, as a leader is he always told us why. He just never said, Master told me, I said so, I knew him, you didn't, I've been on the path longer than you. Sometimes perhaps he thought those things, but I, I don't even think he even thought them. He felt obligated to teach us how to be disciples. Because that was his job. 
He wasn't there to be the guru and that we would all just obey and he would take over our lives in this sort of immature image that we had of what a guru actually was. When I would teach a lot of beginning classes, people would say, I don't want a guru because I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. And I would say, no such luck, honey. Nobody's going to tell you what to do. You know, wouldn't it be easy if someone would tell us what to do? That's not at all what happens. And so Swami was teaching us how to be a disciple. So whenever he made an important decision, he would spend a long time explaining to us what he was thinking and why. And so what I realized, that this is what I learned from him very directly, is I learned how to think. I learned how to be aware. I learned how to deal with difficulties. I learned how to crash and burn and pick myself up. You know, Swami's life was dramatic, if nothing else. I mean, just so much stuff happened. From before we met him, when he was expelled from SRF, and they they never gave up trying to discredit him as a disciple. It was a a theme from the beginning to the end of his life. The people that he had the most respect for, that he should have been the closest to in the world, were absolutely unrelentingly against him. Now think about that. And yet he figured out how to deal with it. So, I mean, any little thing that we go through, there it was. He went through it. And he always just kept telling us, this is what I'm doing, this is why I'm doing, I said this before, but now I've changed my mind, I think we're going to do this, no, maybe not, oh no, let me think about it again, you know, just back and forth and back and forth. And that's what I tried to put into this book, the legacy of what it means to be a disciple and how to be a disciple, and what he was trying to accomplish, and all the many, many things that never got done. I mean, like this temple, you know, this temple was, I, I don't know whether it was 87, 88, We had a minister's meeting and he suggested we build this temple. It was actually a very, this is a story in there, but it's it's related to this temple. I think it was around, let me just think for a second, when would it have been? Rosanna was still there, so it was probably the late 80s, somewhere in there. And uh, we had a minister's meeting and he started out by just talking about that Ananda will never really be what it's supposed to be until we have a real temple. There's a lot more that he said about it. And it was to be right here you know, at this end of the meadow. And we had a minister's meeting in the morning, and he was telling us, let's do it, we can do it, let's build this temple, and we're all with him. Then we take a lunch break, and people start saying things to Swami like, we have a lot of debt, you know, we need housing at the retreat more than we need a temple, you know, just a lot of reasons why we couldn't do it. So Swami then comes back after lunch and says to the group, you know, well, these are the objections that are raised. Now, I didn't even actually understand this until I was writing the book. And we said, yeah, there are a lot of problems. I don't think we can do it. And we just folded up right in front of him. And only when I was looking at it later did I realize he wanted us to say, we can do it, we can do it. But we just went like that. Just a little obstacle and we were just done. And and so I was very realistic. He just saw that we we just didn't have it. We weren't going to make it. So, you know, there it was, and now we're 2019, and we finally did it. But, you know, all of those nuances, both the fact that he wanted us to rise to it, and his response when he saw we couldn't. I mean, these are the things that we all have to understand about what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a leader, what it means to not give up, but to be strategic in our not giving up, not to, not to force people beyond who they are. I mean, there's a thousand lessons in this. And I have been so gratified 
for the people who either read this as a manuscript or, or read it later. Um, that the kinds of responses I'm getting are exactly what I hoped. One, I know Swami in a way I didn't know him before. Ah, and I understand. I see what he was doing. I see what, what's going on here. I'm learning like this. And it's just, that's the whole point. Because we have a job to do. This is a life and legacy. And it's our life and our legacy. And I don't know if this book will have a bigger reality than just Ananda itself. I'll be most curious. I haven't yet, and I'm a long way from getting a total outsider to read it. You know, somebody who doesn't know us already. I'll be very interested to see if it translates. But if it only serves us, and it serves the cause that Swami lived for and that we've all lived for, that would be enough. And just to finish before my time is up, um, you know, it really got to be that Swami was writing it. I, I, I typed manuscripts for Swami at different times. Those stories are in the book. I feel like I typed this manuscript too. I really did, after a while. It was just, and he was so specific. I wish, I can't quite remember now. I wish I could remember the exact one. It's on another recording. But in some sentence, I used an adjective toward him or toward a situation that he had never used himself. And I, that, that just, it's just like I would take a walk and that adjective would nag at me, you know? I'd wake up in the night and the adjective was nagging at me like this. And I could just hear him saying, I never said that and I never would have said it. <laughs> and I kept arguing, it's a good word, sir, I like it, you know? <laughs> he kept saying, no, no. And finally I said, all right, and I took it down like that. And another time, another time I wrote one of those sentences that I used to be fond of. A sentence that almost makes sense, you know, that has a few good words in it, you know, like devotion and North Star or something like that. It just had a few words that it almost made sense. Swami said sometimes people write and they don't actually know what they mean, but they're hoping that somebody will figure it out. <laughs> so it was one of those sentences where it really didn't make any sense, but it almost made sense, and I liked it. And like, for three or four days, he kept telling me, I said, that's a terrible sentence. And I said, no, sir, look, it looks good, you know. We, I mean, we were just talking like this. Finally, he started laughing. I started laughing because it was just so ridiculous. It was just a conversation that we would have had if he'd been there. And finally, I said, of course, sir, I'll take it out. So I took it out, disappeared. Just, you know, he never came back and talked to me about it. So I felt very uh, guided, you know. And, and what it also confirmed, and I say this to all of you, you know, I knew Swamiji in person, but he talked to me as if he was in the same room with me, which is not about me. It's about what's there to happen. And discipleship, it, it's not about the guru, it's about the disciple. You know, the consciousness is there, beaming out at all times, and whether we open our hearts and minds to it is the deciding factor, and that's the only deciding factor. And my, you know, devout, heartfelt prayer is that this will help you to realize that it's worth doing, you know, because we, we're witness to greatness and there's a tremendous amount of our line of teaching and Master's ray to us. Swamiji said, you know, he had spiritual responsibility and more than that, he said, for many, many, many people at Ananda, he's our link. He never, he never replaced Master, but he made Master accessible to us. 
because he trained us to be disciples in a way that we didn't get from Master himself. So I would actually like to end. Um, somewhere this was described as a book launch. This book has been launched several times. But what I would like to ask of you is I feel that, you know, I've never had children, but I can figure out that at a certain point after you've been taking care of your baby for a really long time, it grows up and goes away and has its own life. <laughs> and it starts having all kinds of experiences that you don't know anything about. Well, I feel that way about this, you know. I've been mothering this thing in one form or another for all my whole life. And now it's a grown-up, and it's going to just sail out and have its own life. And it has the potential to awaken a lot of people to their own potential and to the potential of this life. And so what I would like from all of you is that we, we bless it, you know. And these are what I would call our... Um, as yet unmet soul brothers and sisters. That this, this can be a network that will bring to us brothers and sisters that we haven't yet met and awaken them to this path. So why don't you stand up? I'm going to tell a joke before I finish this. Not a joke, but a funny story. We had this huge satsang in our temple in Palo Alto. When Swami would come, we'd have like about, just word of mouth, we'd have about 350 people there, and Swamiji was there. And he was usually on his way to or from, probably this time he was going. So we had this wonderful satsang, and I said, why don't we bless Swamiji? So I get up on the microphone, and Swami's sitting on the dais like this, and I say, and he was wearing a, a wireless mic, so, and I, I had two, so we were both amplified. I said, now visualize Swamiji. And then his voice comes on. He says, you don't have to visualize me. I'm sitting right here. <laughs> so, visualize the book. <laughs> but actually, what I want us to visualize is really something we have to visualize. At some point, in some way, each one of us was drawn to the spiritual path. You know, either to this path, somebody handed me Vivekananda's book and Lakshmi said, I've met a real teacher and I think you'll like him. Every one of us has that moment. So we have, our family is infinite in its potential size and there's a lot of our brothers and sisters out there who are waiting for the energy to come to them from us you know, the heart, the heart and soul call that will bring them to us. And because this is about Lightbearer as a book, just see this as one of Master's many, 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 many ways that he's going to touch hearts and minds and bring people to the light. So let's just, it's a, it's just a, a what do you say? It's an extension of our hearts, you know. Think how much we love one another and think how many more we could love and how many more could love God and Guru. And let's see this book having its own sort of like a secret agent for Divine Mother, just going out there and doing its job. And all of our commitment to our brothers and sisters, giving it magnetism and pushing it forward. And then let's rub our hands together and chant Om.
to just say one last thing and thank you to the spiritual family. There were certain points in this project when I really didn't believe I could do it. But it was, uh, but all my friends believed I could do it. And I can't tell you what that meant to me and how much that changed my mind. I thought, what are the chances that I'm the only one who knows and they're all wrong? <laughs> I, it was very serious. So we help each other much more than we know. And I, I want to thank you for all that. Now, we have hundreds of these books. And some of you were in line to get to bought books and to have your book signed. So those of you who were in line before and left their books there, please go there. And if you would like to buy a book and have me sign it. If you don't want to wait now, I'm here all week. I'll always have a pen. <laughs> so thank you all very much.